Part 2 of the class of Yeshaya Hanavi, Isaiah the Prophet. One of the most pivotal parts of Yeshaya's um, prophecies deal with Chizkiyahu HaMelech, King Chizkiyahu, or Hezkiah, and the role that Yeshaya was going to play in this incredible military campaign, or lack of military campaign, as events end up unfolding, was going to become extremely famous. It's something that Isaiah, Yeshaya prophesied at great length about before it even happened. And then the aftermath of that became exceptionally important because it, it will lead to the next 150 years of Jewish history. And it all started during the reign of King Chizkiyahu. Yeshaya, as we spoke about in the first class, has already lived his career through three kings all of whom are related to him, are are relatives, like uncle and cousin, or cousin and then a a cousin once removed, two righteous kings, and now a third king, who we spoke about already, who was very wicked, and Yeshaya had to criticize and rebuke and tell him to correct his ways. Unfortunately, it made no difference. He still chose to do whatever he chose to do. And then upon his passing, you would assume that his son would be Wicked, just like him, he'd go in the same path that his father went in, and it couldn't have been further from the truth. Hiskiyol led a very different life than his father, to such a degree that his first uh, point of action, the first thing he did upon becoming king, was disgracing his father. And that's usually something that's frowned upon. A, fa- a son always has to pay respect and homage to his father. Even if the father is very wicked, he needs to treat him with utmost care and respect. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's an actual law in the, in the Torah. And Chizkiyot's first course of action, his first thing he did on the day that his father died, was humiliate his father's body. He took his father's body, King Achaz. He, put, he saddled him in a, in a bed made of ropes and he, he had his body dragged throughout the streets of Jerusalem. It was a very humiliating... I mean, for any person, it would have been humiliating for a son to do that to the father. But this, his father was a king. So why did he do this? He did this because he wanted the people to understand that the way his father behaved throughout his kingship was so unbelievably not in line with goodness, not in, in line with justice, not in line with anything that should be emulated. And he wanted to show people he was a king but his behavior was not all right. And people should realize that this type of behavior is not one that's going to be tolerated, not one that's going to be endorsed throughout King Chizkiyot's long career. And he set the tone from the very get-go. He said, I don't care if someone's a king. I don't care if they're my own father. Injustice and irresponsible behavior, or not irresponsible, but um, um, not good or, or, or just behavior is Absolutely intolerable. What's interesting is the rabbis actually agreed with this conduct. Usually, this type of behavior would not be acceptable. A son to treat a father or anyone to treat any form of body with even the slightest sense of disrespect would be frowned upon. In this particular case, the rabbis actually agreed with King Chizkiyot, the newly crowned king, because what the message he was sending was critical that the, gener- the new generation would understand this type of behavior that the previous king did was deplorable and had to be called out. King Chizkiyot became king in the year 264 years after the building of the first temple. So, it's more than halfway through the building of the temple. It's a good 50 years or so after Yeshaya has already become a prophet. So he's been a prophet for fifty over 50 years. He's already a well-recognized figure now in Jewish history, and he was going to be a prophet for a lot longer. He had one of the longest careers of prophecy. For just for context, it's 562 years BCE. And the Jewish year was 399 
the year 3199, it was 2,500 years ago. Chizkiyahu's name already shows to his greatness. His name comes from, comes from the word Chazak, which means strength, and Hashem's name, the Yud and then the Hey. So um, his name basically means the strength of Hashem. His mother's name is mentioned because he, he was great. His mother saved his life. His mother coded his, his body as a young child in a special salamander, a type of lizard blood. And that actually saved him from getting burnt alive. His father tried to kill him, and his mother saved his life by coating him in this blood. And what's interesting is, when describing him in the Book of Kings, in the Book of Malachim, it describes Chizkiyahu in the context of King David, and it seems to imply that Chizkiyahu was either equal in greatness to King David, to David HaMalach, or he was even greater. And there are people that say that he wasn't as great, but only in certain elements he was greater, possibly, or equal. But the fact that he's even being compared to David HaMalach, King David, is a tremendous amount of um, understanding what type of person we're dealing with. We're not talking about a regular human being, not a flawed individual. We're talking about an extremely righteous man, one of the greatest, if not the greatest king in Jewish history, and one of the greatest Jews to ever live. He was incredibly righteous. He was incredibly devout. His sincerity and his piety was unmatched. And he was attributed as a son of David HaMelech because his behavior was so in line with the way that David HaMelech behaved and so much of the lessons that he learned with throughout his life, as we'll see as the, the drama unfolds in this story, was very much in line with the behavior and the, the, the beautiful connection that David HaMelech had with Hashem. He managed to do something from the very start of his career that no other king, including David HaMelech and Shlomo, had done throughout their careers. So many kings had had been crowned and had passed away before King Chizkiyahu was king, and yet he was the first one to finally get rid of the Bamois. Bamois were homemade um, altars in the backyard, from the times of when the Jewish people um, came into Israel, they built back, backyard altars, stones, they put them together, and they took sacrifices, and they sacrificed them to Hashem. And it was good. It was something Hashem loved. People would feel inspired. They will take a, an animal, and they would sacrifice it to Hashem. And it was beautiful, and it was wonderful, until the temple was built. Once the base of Migdash was built by King Solomon, by Shlomo Hamach, at that point, that behavior was considered Forbidden. If a person wanted to bring a sacrifice to God, the only place they could do it was in the base Hamidish, in the temple. Anywhere else was forbidden. But the problem was people were, people had already spent 300 years and change doing this, bringing sacrifices in their backyard, having this beautiful you know, personal connection to God. And trying to get people to stop it was very, very difficult. They said, what's wrong? I'm serving God. I'm not trying to do this to an idol. I'm not trying to do this you know, as some form of rebelling to God. I, just, I want to have a personal connection to God. I don't, I don't feel institutional Judaism in the temple. I want to have a connection to God on my own. And trying to stop it was extremely difficult. And the kings tried. And they failed. Because they could get them to stop idol worship, they could get them to stop all the other types of sins. But these particular high places, as they're called, which Abama, a, a homemade altar, was something the kings, even the greatest of them, until that time, couldn't stop. And finally, Chizkiyot said, enough. The only place you bring a sacrifice is in the base of Mikdash. This is the law. No one's to break this law anymore. And people listened for the first time. They, they took them down. And from that point on, it didn't become something that was problematic among the Jewish people. Chizkiyot managed to uproot something which until then hadn't actually been uprooted. He made a lot of changes. His start of his kingship was an, extre- an extreme renaissance of Judaism. He was coming after a very wicked king who had 
actively uprooted Judaism, who closed down all the t- study halls and f- forbade people from entering, who had closed the doors of the base Middash and forbade people from entering. So Cheskiyot wasn't just an incredible period. It was an extreme contrast to the period of deep spiritual agony and destruction that had happened before. He made so many changes, and these changes revitalized Judaism in ways that we've barely seen in history since and, and until then. He went around Israel, cutting down all the Asherah trees. There, there were trees that people idol-worshipped. He cut them down. One after this, found them all, tracked them, and cut them down. He cut down, he crushed a copper snake. In the times of Moshe, the Jewish people had sinned. Moses in the desert. And they, Moshe had wanted to remind them of Hashem. So he took a snake, he, based on Hashem's commandments, it was made out of copper, and put it on a stick and lifted it up in the, high in the heavens. And the Jewish people looked at the snake, looked beyond the snake in the heavens, and they realized, oh no, we need, a, we need to pay our attention above. We need to pay attention to Hashem. And they repented. And this copper snake was a reminder throughout history of the need that Jewish people have to look up and to remember Hashem. And for many centuries, it remained as a warning to the Jewish people of, you know, what could, how bad it could get if we don't listen to God. And the amazing miracle God did for Moshe in the desert, enabling the Jewish people to recover from their illnesses and be, be healed. In the times of Chizkiel, right before the times of Chizkiel, the Jewish people decided to turn this snake into an idol. They said, well, this snake, people were dying and they, they were poisoned and they looked at the snake and they became better. And of course, that's not what happened. But because that agenda started getting pressed and people started bowing down to this snake, a copper snake, they started bowing down to it, they treated it like an idol. Chizkiyot said, the benefit of having this around, that people remember the amazing miracle that happened in the desert, has been lost in the fact that people are actively bowing down to it and creating it into some form of deity. And therefore, he took the snake, crushed it into powder and sprinkled it everywhere, literally destroying the idol, destroying you know any form of monument, any form of connection to it. It was done. It was a shame because this was it was a, a really an interesting and important artifact. People would look at it and they would remember the times in the desert. And it was wonderful in that respect. But in regards to the Jewish people's um, commitment to God, Chizkiyot said this is a problematic artifact and therefore it needs to be destroyed. He destroyed it and the rabbis praised him for this, for this um, destruction of this artifact because they said his, he was right. His, his motive was good. He, he did so many other actions like this where he went around encouraging Jews to come closer to God and very actively destroying anything connected to idol worship. The, the big moment of Hiskiyo's early kingship and again, this is though this topic is about Yeshaya, it's very important to understand the contrast, the background with which the 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 main part of the story, which we're going to build up to, is set upon. The story of Chizkiyot is going to be very important for that reason. Chizkiyot made a massive Teshuva movement, not just for the south of Israel, which he controlled and he was the king of, but also for the north of Israel. It was Pesach time, the people were impure, and he decided that he wants people to, you know, they, they spent um, so much time involved in impurity and idol worship, and he fixed up the Beis HaMikdash, and he made sure that all the idol worship was out of the temple, and then he invited across, not just the south of Israel, but the north of Israel as well, he invited them, he said, come join us in the Beis HaMikdash for Pesach. Now, they had not had permission to come from the, from the north to the south. Already 150 years earlier, Yeruvim and Nevat had placed guards along the border between the north and the south of Israel, said anyone that crosses the border is getting killed. And all the subsequent kings of the north had forbade their kingdoms 
from going to the south of Israel to go into the base of Egypt. They were worried. They'll go to the base of Egypt. They'll go to the temple. They'll see all the miracles. They'll see all the kingship of the south. And they'll they'll become enamored with God. And that was the last thing they wanted. The north of Israel was a lot far, far wickeder than the south. And so they placed guards. Finally, for the last king of the north of Israel, he said, you know what? People could go if they want. So people had this license to go. Hosea ben Elah, the final king of the north, and we'll hear in a moment what actually ended up happening. He wasn't a very righteous king, but in this regard, he did something good. He let them go to the south. The borders were open, and Hiskiyot sent messages all around the north of Israel, begging them, saying, come return to Hashem. This is your opportunity. Come to the base of Migdash, bring a sacrifice for Pesach, and experience something that your father and grandfather and great-grandfather for 150 years haven't been able to do. Many Jews took the opportunity up. Unfortunately, a lot didn't. I want to say a lot, a, a very large amount didn't take this opportunity. And now they were no longer innocent of going to the south. Until then, for 150 years, the Jewish people in the north, north couldn't be blamed for not going to the temple because their heads would have been cut off otherwise. But now that the king, for the first time, the first king to finally give permission for them to go down to the south, to go to the temple, had opened the borders and they still didn't go, now Hashem said, well, your excuses are over. And that actually was the reason, or one of the reasons attributed to the final destruction of the north of Israel. But Chizkiyot opened up the borders and people did take advantage. Some people mocked the messengers, but there were many people who did, were excited to finally go to the base of Midrash for the first time, and they came down, and there was a massive celebration. The Torah talks about the incredible celebration that occurred. Chizkiyot pushed off the date the, the date, he added an extra month of Adar, but unfortunately he did it during the month of Nisan. So not all the rabbis agreed with his decision. The rule is you can only add an extra month of the year if it's still in the month of Adar. In this case, it was already the month of Nisan, and he said, well, actually, this Nisan's going to be Adar number two instead of Nisan, and that's a problem. So the rabbis didn't really agree with that decision, but regardless, that he pushed off the, he pushed off the, the month of Nisan by another month and made a massive celebration for Pesach, and it was an incredible celebration. The Jewish people came, they fixed the Beis HaMikdash up, they rejoiced together with Hashem in the Beis HaMikdash, and it was an incredible moment of Teshuvah where all the people, or as many as, um, as many as those that came, all had this incredible devotion towards Hashem and this commitment towards Hashem that was all spurred on by Kikhisio. And there wasn't the only Renaissance he made. One final point about the Renaissance is that they say during his time, the movement was so powerful, was so great, that there wasn't a single man, woman, or even a child throughout the entire part of Israel that he controlled, and it seems like even more north as well, that wasn't an expert in the hardest parts of the Torah, the most complicated parts, the parts which nowadays the greatest rabbis have no idea what, what, what the Torah means, the, the laws of impurity and purity, that even the children living at the time of King Chizkiyahu were experts, not just knowledgeable, but were experts in these topics. He, he revolutionized his entire, his entire generation. That's in regards to King Chizkiyahu himself. But the actual politics, the larger politics of the of the the time of King Chizkiyot was a lot less desirable, a lot less um, exciting and fun. His father had invited in one of the most um, problematic allies, who ended up becoming one of the largest enemies to the Jewish people. His name was Shalmaneser, but another name that he's famously known as is Sancheref. And during the times of King Ahaz, he's known as Shalmaneser. But from this point onwards, we're going to refer to him as Sancheriv, because that's the name, that's his, mo- his most famous name. And that's the name of the, the, the foe, the Assyrian king that we're going to be dealing with moving forward with Yeshaya and, the, and King Chizkiyahu. 
there's a, a, a argument among the rabbis. Did Chizkiyahu initially pay tribute to Sancheirev and then stop, or did he straight away stop? His father definitely paid tribute, and Chizkiyahu at some point stopped. Whether it was the very beginning of his reign, he set the tone, I'm not paying any tribute, or he paid for a little bit, and then at some point he's like, no, I'm not doing this anymore, and he stopped. Whatever it was, the king of Ashur, Sancheirev, deeply wicked and egotistical man, decided, well, that's enough of a reason for me to do what I always wanted to do, and, I, and he declared war on the south of Israel. But before he did that, he first declared war on the north of Israel. He came to the north of Israel with an army, one of the largest armies in history, 185,000 officers, which led over or just under 2.6 million troops. Exactly how many is a discussion itself, but somewhere in the, somewhere in the ballpark between 2.5 and change to 2.6 million troops. His army was so large that he said about his army that he would, his army would march into a river and this first group of soldiers, the first third of soldiers would drink the water and then swim across. The second group of, of soldiers would drink and the third group of soldiers would go through the river and walk entirely on dry land because the first two batches of soldiers had entirely drunk up the, the, the river. We're talking about an army that was un, unimaginably large, especially in, for those days. And Sancheyev conquered a tremendous amount of land, and his tactic to gaining, to keeping control was displacement. He believed that if you just took people out of the land that they were comfortable in, they would lose national pride, and then controlling them would be easy. So conquering is the easy part of the job. Keeping control is the hard part. And he said, well, it's just simple. I'll just take entire nations, relocate them to other, other places. They won't feel any national pride, and they'll feel, well, you know, Sancheyev is the king. I'm, I'm just part of the Assyrian Empire, and therefore no allegiance to anything but the Assyrian cause. It was successful to a point, but at some point, of course, that ran out, and people started feeling national pride to the new location. And it wasn't until the Assyrians and the Babylonians both failed at their attempt of displacement that the Persian Empire finally discovered the best thing to do was actually just let people practice their religions, practice their national prize, pride, and the only thing they have to do is swear allegiance to the Persian Empire. That tactic actually worked. And because the Persians respected the nations that they conquered, the nations of the, of the nations that they conquered didn't mind being under Persian rule, but Assyria hadn't learned that lesson yet. And so they said, well, let's just displace everyone. So they came to the north of Israel, they declared war on Hashem and Elah, who had already, you know, kind of declared war against Assyria himself. They won the war. They grabbed the ten tribes that lived in the north of Israel. And this is one of the most famous events. The north of Israel, the ten tribes of the north of Israel became officially relocated out of Israel. And they were scattered. To this very day, the north of Israel, the ten tribes are still considered lost. Some of them returned, which we'll discuss in a, in a later seminar. But for the most part, the majority of the north of Israel have never returned to Israel. And one of the prophecies of Mashiach is the ingathering of the nations. After succeeding in conquering the north of Israel, and it might have been a few years later, but the point was the king Sancheirev now made his way south. And he had a very personal motive. In addition to conquering the, the south of Israel and you know relocating the Jewish people that lived there, he also had a personal agenda. He did like King Cheskiyahu. The fact that King Cheskiyahu was so dedicated to God troubled him extremely deeply. And also he believed God to be a 
a trouble to him. He believed he was God-like as well, and there was God of the Jews and there's him, and he felt he needs to have a war with the God of the Jews to kind of like settle the score that he's the greater God. He considered himself to be a God. And he believed that the entry point to heaven was the temple. So he said, well, it's simple. I'll destroy the temple. I'll make my way through the entry point into the heavens. I'll wage war against God. I'll win, obviously. That's what he imagined. And then, you know, I'll get rid of that problem. And, of course, that changed the dynamics of the war, because it wasn't just Sancheria versus King Chizkiyo, who, who was a very righteous man. It was, San, it was Sancheria versus King Chizkiyo versus God as well. And that changed the dynamics. So a lot of the times when you look in the language of, in the Book of Kings, and you look in the, the, the Divrei Hayamim, the Book of Chronicles, and the Book of Yeshaya himself, you see how Hashem says, I'm doing this for my own sake. When it, when it talks about waging war against Sancheria. Sancheria waged war against God, and God said, okay, Let's have, let's have this war, let's see how it goes. And so you'll see, Hashem will invoke himself when he talks about defending the Jewish people and defending Chizkiyo against Sancheriv's attack. He came, the one interesting thing, Yeshaya talks about the yoke being broken by the oil. Very cryptic message. Like most of Yeshaya's words, his prophecy needs a lot of unpacking in order to understand. To this very day, there's so many lessons that we're still unpacking and we're still learning to try understand the true depth, or at least partial part of the depth of Yeshaya's amazing prophecies, so much of which are about Mashiach. And we want to understand what the world will be like on Mashiach. Unpacking his prophecies connected to Mashiach is giving us that insight. And what's interesting parenthetically, that so many of the things we're noticing in the world now are things Yeshaya talked about 2,000 years ago. Things he talked about that we couldn't imagine to be possible. He spoke about these prophecies as a matter of fact, and we kept on trying to unpack what it means, and now we're just seeing it in the world. Right as the approach of Mashiach is right, is, is right here. But Yeshaya says something interesting. He prophesized about the yoke being broken by the oil. And people didn't understand what he meant. What is a yoke being broken? Yoke is the part of the animal that you use to steer the animal when you're working it. And it's a lot, it's very strong. It's not, the idea of a yoke is for it not to be broken. And the oil is the soft back of the neck. It's the oily part of the neck, which usually is, is, is what you use to leverage the animal because it's soft and the animal doesn't want to get hurt. So, the oil breaking the yoke is very is a very strange concept. And Yeshaya was prophesizing that King Chizkiyahu, who used oil to light to keep the lights on late in the study hall so people could learn Torah, it was going to be that oil that was going to break the powerful yoke of Sancheir, the king of Assyria, of King of Asher. The war itself was began in the year 548 BCE, 14 years of kingship deep into King Chizkiyo. So after him being king for 14 years, that's when the actual the actual war really began in earnest. First, there was the north of Israel. The Sanchev was also conquering a tremendous amount of the world. He really conquered a large bulk of the known world of, of, of the time. And by the time he circled back to Chizkiyo, Chizkiyo had already been king for 14 very successful years. And he declared war on the south of Israel. Chizkiyot had th- employed three strategies. He learned the strategies from Yaakov, from Jacob. When Jacob was being um, approaching Israel, knew that he's going to have to contend with his brother. He also used three pro- approaches. And Chizkiyot said, well, let me, let me use those three things. He appeased him. He, sent, he prayed, and he also prepared for battle. So King, King Chizkiyahu, a righteous king, said, I shall learn from a righteous man like Jacob, like Yaakov, and I'll do exactly the same thing. 
appeasement, he took the walls of the, the doors of the temple and he melted it down for the gold and he sent that to Sancheir as a peace offering, saying, listen, this is a lot of money, let's, you know, let, let, just take my money and, and let's, let's, let's not have a battle over this. And the rabbis actually criticized that. He was, his intention was to save Jewish lives. He said, oh, avoiding this war is, is pretty much avoiding a death sentence. If, 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 if all it is is money, well then, you know, let me send it to him. That, those, that gold-plated doors had actually been plated by himself. He himself had plated those doors in, as respect to God and as you know, dedication to the temple that had been so badly mistreated during the reign of his father. He sold it in order to save the Jewish people, but the rabbi said he should have had more trust in God and he shouldn't have sold the doors. Even to save Jewish life, he should have just believed that God was going to take care of him in this, in this particular case. So someone as great as Chizkiyo should have had more belief and more trust in God. The second thing he did was prayer, and we'll get to that in a little bit. And the third thing he did was preparation for battle. He appointed officers, but more importantly, he believed in spiritual battle. He believed that if you wanted to defeat an enemy, it's not just enough to build an army, you also need to prepare spiritually. You need to have the force of the Jewish people in a spiritual sense protecting them, and he believed that to be Torah. He believed the power of learning Torah is what protects the Jewish people, so he put a sword into the front of every single um, study hall across the country. And he made an announcement like this. He said, any person that doesn't come and, and study Torah is going to have to contend with the sword that's poking out of the study hall. And that was a strong motivator, as you can imagine. And people started flocking to the study hall, starting, starting to learn Torah. And Chizkiyo believed that to be the powerful method that, with which he could defeat such a tremendous foe, such a tremendous enemy. Now, if Chizkiyoh didn't have enough problems at this point, as Sancheyev got closer, Chizkiyoh fell ill. But it wasn't regular illness. It was an extreme illness, an illness with which no person, he was so ill that no person had reached this state of illness until that point and had ever recovered. He was extremely ill. He couldn't move. He was lying on a bed in deep agony. He had sores all over himself, blisters and pus. It was, it was really, really bad news. And Chizkiyoh was kind of a sitting duck at this point. He had an illness which seemed like it was about to kill him any moment, and he had an enemy unlike almost anything that had ever risen in human history um, at his front door. He wasn't a large force to be contended with, even regularly speaking. He didn't have a military like the, like some of the more famous kings of the Jewish people had, and he only had half of Israel. Remember, the north of Israel was entirely um, in exile at this point. And a lot of the cities had already been destroyed in the south of Israel by Sancheo's army. And now he was marching on Jerusalem, which was surrounded by a wall, but that wasn't much of a help. The important thing to know, one other thing he did to protect himself, which the rabbis weren't happy about, but it was something he believed needed to be done, and that was he reworked the waterways in the city of Jerusalem to stay within the walls and not to go outside. He was worried about a siege. And that, that most likely was what was going to happen, a very long, drawn-out siege. And he was worried that the water supply would be feeding the enemy as well as the people inside the walls. And so he said, well, it's just simple. Let me rework the waterways. And to this very day, you could go and, and you could visit in Jerusalem Chizkiyahu's tunnels. It's an incredible thing to, to behold. Tunnels deep under the ground that bring water through the city, not letting it actually go outside of the city. And he redirected the Shleich Spring to stay inside the city. The rabbis weren't happy because by redirecting that waterway, there were communities and cities that now lost their water because it, it flowed outwards for miles. And 
Chizkiyahu's um, attempt to preserve himself was harming other people. And the rabbi said, like before, someone as great as Chizkiyahu, such a righteous man should have had more belief in God and just left the water the way it was. Usually people are expected to do their due diligence, but a person like Chizkiyahu, such a righteous man, should have just had pure faith in God. He could have survived the whole event without having to do anything himself, which is, as history will show, exactly what happened. He didn't have to do a single thing to win this war. Now, a head of the army was sent a dignitary, an officer, a very high-ranking officer, as most people did in those days. And they, these people were there to kind of like give the ultimatums, you know, to threaten each other, to find some way to avoid a war. No side wanted a war. Even if the other side knew they were going to win, they'd rather the other side give in and be able to get, the, get whatever they want without having to go to war. Because in war, people die, and no king wants to willingly, no, no sane king wants to w- willingly put their own men under danger, if they can avoid a war and get everything that the war's there to accomplish, well, they'll be happy to do it. So, Sanchev sent ahead of himself a man by the name of Rav Shake, and he told Rav Shake, go tell the Jewish people my demands. If they agree to the demands, the war won't happen, and if they don't, of course, we're going to take an army of 2.6 million people strong, and we'll crush them. Rav Shake was Jewish. He's one of the first examples in Jewish history of self-hating Jews. He was anti-Semite. He hated Jews with a passion. He hated God with a passion. He really, really hated King Cheskiyahu with a passion. And he, he didn't affiliate himself as a Jewish person in the slightest. Unfortunately, he was going to be a long chain of self-hating Jews, people who somehow would get off or find some form of nobility in attacking and maligning and terrorizing their own fellow Jews. And somehow they felt that this would be some form of acceptance among the rest of the world if they were the ones to point out the Jewish problem or the Jewish flaws. He was notably a very terrifying exception, a very terrifying example of the self-hating Jew, and he would take it to a very deep extreme. He came to the city, the wall cities, and he wanted to talk to King Chizkiyo, but as I just mentioned, King Chizkiyo was dying. He was lying on a bed dying, and King Chizkiyo said, I can't go. I'm sick. And so he sent his two next in commands, a man by the name of Shevna and another man by the name of Eliakim, and he told them, You go talk to Rav Shake. But he had a feeling Rav Shake wasn't was there not, you know, to to help King Cheskiol out, but exactly the opposite. To malign and to to belittle and to mock Cheskiol and to mock God. And so he told Shevna and Eliakim, he said, don't get into an argument with him. Hear whatever messages and terms he has. And then come back into the city. Don't don't get into a discussion. Don't get into an argument. And so they come out of the city. These two high-ranking officers, next in command after Chizkiyahu, and they have a discussion with him. And he begins to speak in Hebrew. He's Jewish. He's part of the north of Israel. The you know part of the people that were that had been chased out of their land and relocated. And he knew Hebrew. And he was having a discussion. And they told him, "There's no reason for you to speak in Hebrew." They were Torah scholars. They knew. What I imagine to be all seventy languages, and they told they told Rav Shake, we know Aramaic, we know the language of Assyria. Let's talk in your language. And Rav Shake told them, I know that you know my language. The reason I'm talking to you in Hebrew is because I'm not really talking to you. I'm talking to the thousands of soldiers on the wall listening on to our conversation. They're the ones that need to listen to this conversation because I have nothing really to say to King Cheskiyahu. Why was he there? He was there only one agenda. He wanted to spark an uprising in the city. He wanted to let the people not trust Chizkiyo anymore. So he spoke in Hebrew so they'd understand to create riot, to create chaos, to create havoc in the hopes 
that they would assassinate King Chizkiyahu to avoid the war and open the doors. The terms were simple. The terms were open the doors, let us capture Chizkiyahu and kill him, and let us take control of the temple. If they do that, told Rav Shake to the two generals of King Chizkiyahu, if they agree to those terms, the rest of the people will be spared, they'll be relocated, he didn't say to a greater land, because Sancheyev already knew that there was no land as great as, as Israel, but he said they'll be, he'll be relocated to a land equal, which is also, of course, a mistake, but he had enough respect for that. He said, and they'll be spared, their lives will be spared. And he then told them why they have no other alternative. Rav Shaki said, listen, there's only three possibilities you could hope for. Possibility number one is finding an ally to join in the war with the south of Israel. <clears throat> and he said, there's only one army alive that has the chance to possibly even the score, and that is Egypt. But Egypt are not going to get involved over a tiny little piece of land. They don't want Assyria to take control of Israel, but at the same time, they're not going to risk involving themselves in a war for that. And even if they would, Rav Shake warns the two generals, even if they would, you're not to trust Egypt. You know better than that. They just as they're, they're they're like a reed. They'll snap in a second, and they'll become your new enemy. You don't want to involve them in the war, which was the truth. That was about. He was right in that regard. Egypt was not a good ally at that time. The second option, of course, was a miracle, godly miracle. So Rav Shaki said, "You don't. You can't expect a godly miracle." Isaiah, Yeshaya, Hanavi had already predicted the Jewish people suffering until the neck, a very serious form of suffering, and he said, "Well." Yeshai has already predicted dreadful things happening to the Jewish people. That's obvious, that obviously is, you know, that's your, your sign that no miracle is going to be happening to come and save you. And number three, a battle, Rav Shaki said, there's no chance. This is such a large army, and Cheskyo is weak. Cheskyo has a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the, of the military force. He said, that, that's it. Those are your only three options, and those three options... All of them are nonsensical. Your only real choice you have is to declare defeat, open the doors, let us in, we'll get rid of King Cheskyo, we'll get rid of the temple, and we'll relocate you and you'll be able to live. And once he finished his actual message, then he began to actually do, you know, I guess his second agenda, and that was to mock God, mock Cheskyo, and he did that very effectively. He began to call out God and deny God. And as a Jewish person, it was a very troubling thing for these two men to hear a fellow Jew mocking God and mocking Chizkiyahu, and especially the one thing that he really zoned in on is Chizkiyahu's power of prayer. He said Chizkiyahu believes that he's able to pray and that prayer is somehow able to defeat us. That's, that's an impossibility. Chizkiyahu doesn't have a form, a, a power of prayer, and he's not able to pray. And he really mocked Chizkiyahu, and he, even, and he also went out of his way to mock God. And this is a Jewish man that was, that was doing it. So the two people that listened, they were so horrified, they tore their clothes. And they came to King Chizkiyo, and they told him the words. They didn't argue with Rav Shaki as they were commanded, but they told Chizkiyo, King Chizkiyo, the entire message. Now, what's so interesting about King Chizkiyo's personality, he was, he was so sick that he was willing to incur the, the wrath of Sancheyev by not showing up himself to that meeting. But when it came to praying to God, he said, I'm going to the temple. He went to the base of Midrash. He picked himself up somehow in an illness that he was dying from. He picked himself up to the temple. He went to the temple and he prayed to God and said, God, we have a problem. Please help me out. His devotion to God was such that he couldn't just let it be that he was lying in a bed. He said, I have to go myself. And so he somehow slept himself there, prayed to God. But now he, need, he, want, he needed to get the answer. What does God have to tell him now? What, what is he supposed to do next? He was a God-fearing man. He wanted to do only what God wanted him to do. And so he sent a message to his cousin, Yeshaya Hanavi, Isaiah, 
asking Isaiah, you talk to God, you're a prophet, what does God have to tell me as a response to my prayer? So Yeshaya sent a message back, and the message was, you don't have to worry about him, he's going to get sidetracked, he's going to get detoured, he's not going to be a problem, for now. And so Hiskiyo was thrilled. Hiskiyo goes back to lie on his bed, he's still dying of an illness, but at least the biggest problem, the Jewish people's, you know, the destruction of the base of Migdash and the Jewish people getting conquered, that seems to be averted. And that's exactly what happened. A very short while, as Sanchev is still approaching the city, he discovers a massive rebellion has happened in Africa. Now, rebellions for someone like Sanchev was a very, it was a massive strategic problem because one rebellion would be would mean another rebellion. Another he had to quash it straight away. So even before he can make his way to Jerusalem itself, Rav Shaka had arrived ahead. But now Sanchev had to quickly detour the army and start marching further south and avoiding Jerusalem because he had to get rid of this rebellion. So he kept on marching south, and Rav Shaka, meanwhile, looked a little silly. He had threatened Sanchev's a minute away, and now Sanchev's getting sidetracked with another a military adventure. So Rav Shaka sent a bunch of letters to, to Chizkiyo, riddled with hate and riddled with anger, telling his King Chizkiyo, don't think your God made a miracle for you, detouring this powerful army and that you've avoided it. He said, we're doing a short campaign, we're going to come back, and when we come back, everything we promised to do, we're going to do. So he sent that letter to King Chizkiyo. King Chizkiyo reads the message, and he realizes, okay, this problem is so far from over. So he, again, he picks himself up, travels... Well, how, I'm not sure how far the distance was from his palace until the base of Mish, but he made his way in, in spite of the fact he was extremely, extremely deathly ill, lines up all the letters that Rav Shaki had sent him in the base of Mish itself, lined it up, and started praying to God that God would help him out in this horrible situation. He realized that, you know, he had, it, the problem had been postponed, but it was very far from over. And he sends a message to Yeshaya, the same instruction. He said, you're a prophet, you talk to God, what does God say is going to be the, the, the outcome of this? Yeshaya tells him like this. Yeshaya says, you don't have to worry. He says, a sword won't even come in, an arrow won't be shot, Sanchev will not even enter Jerusalem, you don't have to worry, the siege is going to end, and there's going to be prosperity, and there's going to be goodness, and Yeshaya gives him a, a message of a lot of comfort and a lot of hope. And so he went back to he went back to back to lie in his bed because he was he was ill. And Hashem also mentions when sending Yeshaya, God mentions he says the reason why I'm going to send this miracle, this salvation from Sanchev, is not just in in the sake of King David because King David was that all protecting force for all the kings of uh, all the. Davidic kings, you know, all his ancestors and great-great-grandchildren um, who were all kings, King David protected them. It was like he, Hashem loved him so much that he kind of cast a net of protection over all his, ancestors, all his descendants, enabling them, even the wicked ones, to somehow survive to have children so that the Davidic line would continue, of course, until the coming of Mashiach. But Hashem also said, as I mentioned at the very beginning, that this war is personal. Sanchev has declared himself a quasi-god and has declared himself in war with God. And Hashem said... Well, if that's the case, then this was personal. And I'm not just going to do this in the merit of David HaMelech and King David. I'm also going to do this in my own, for my own sake. A man has declared himself war with God. That's personal. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll have this war. Now, while this was happening, while this war was gearing up, there was another problem. And the problem was Hiskiel was getting 
a lot more sick and his sickness wasn't abating and this is kind of an ironic situation the reason is when Cheskiyahu first became king Cheskiyahu had a book the Jewish people had access to a book. A book was written by the smartest man in history, King Solomon, Shlomo HaMalach, and the book described every single illness that exists and the cure for this illness. Every single one. Nothing was missing. When people died, they just died. But when people got sick, they went to open the book and they found their cure and that was it. They did whatever the cure says and they became, they became healthy. And King Cheskiyahu realizes a problem. At the beginning, when, when King Solomon and Shlomo HaMalach had written the book, people prayed to God. They understood that um, healing comes from God. But then... They would go to the book and open it up and work out what to practically do. But as the years went on, as the decades and the centuries moved on, people stopped recognizing God's part of the whole healing process. They just opened the book and they said, oh, this is what you do for this. And they forgot about the godly part, that God's the one that essentially heals. Now, of course, God wants us to go to doctors and take care of ourselves and do go through the motions of whatever it takes. But we always have to remember that healing it comes from God. Healing is a godly thing. And people started forgetting that and they would just open the book and find the cure in there. And Cheskiyahu made the decision to take the book and hide it. He said people should not have access to this book anymore because it's being misappropriated. This is not the reason why it was created. It was created as an accessory to devotion and belief in God. And now he was sick himself. And he couldn't even open the book to find out what, how to cure himself because that book was gone. So he was dying of an illness and there was nothing to be done, nothing to be had about it. And he wasn't, he wasn't healing. He was getting a lot worse. Now, what's interesting is those messages were passing between Chizkiyot and Yeshaya at the time. They actually hadn't met. And it's a little bit of, poli- not politics, but a little bit complicated why they didn't meet. They both believed each other was supposed to be the ones to make the step to move towards them. Yeshaya wasn't being sent by God to send any scary messages to King Cheskiyot. King Cheskiyot was a very righteous man. So there was no threats that needed to be made to King Cheskiyot because he was following in the ways of Hashem. He was doing all that, that could have been asked or wanted from him. He was such a wonderful, incredible person. So Yeshaya had no reason to send to bring prophecy to him. But to visit him, Yeshaya said, I have a precedent from earlier on in history that a king visited a prophet. Earlier on in the north of Israel, Yehoram had gone to visit Elisha. And so Yeshaya said simply, if a king and a prophet are supposed to meet, the, the precedent is, the protocol is, the king goes to the prophets. King Cheskyo, on the other hand, said, well, in the earlier king, even earlier than Yehoram and Elisha, Eliohanavi and Ahav, it had been exactly the reverse. It was the king that was visited. By the prophet. So he said, if we're supposed to meet, protocol is the prophet meets the king. Both of them didn't visit each other because they said, well, we want to follow. It wasn't egotistical. It was protocol. They said, this is the way protocol is. Protocol is a prophet visits a king. Another one said a king visits a prophet. And so they just never visited each other. And it wasn't because of anger. It wasn't because of ego in the slightest. It was just, they believe this is the way protocol is. And God didn't know what to do. God said, I need to make these people meet each I need to make these people catch up with each other. At the same time, they both feel like they're doing the right, the right thing. So God said, all right, I have no choice. I'll make one of them sick. The other one will be forced to do the commandment of visiting the sick. And that will be that. Then they'll be able to visit. So now Chizkiyahu was sick. Yeshaya had no choice. He had to go visit the king. So he came to the king to visit the king. Now, there was a problem. And this is a little bit, a, take a little step back in history to understand the context for this all. Chizkiyahu yeah, um, wasn't just a regular man. He was a person with deep intuition, a deep understanding of Torah, and he also had good ideas of what the future was going to bring. 
maybe not in a prophetic way, but in, in a deep understanding way, he knew that his son was going to be extremely wicked. And so he said to himself, well, there's one way to avoid that. If I don't get married, I don't have a son, that's the end of that problem. And so he didn't get married. He'd been king for a long time, and he'd run one of the most successful campaigns in, in, in you know, returning to God for his whole, entire kingdom. He was such a successful king in so many elements. But in regards to actually getting married, he did not have a wife. He wasn't married. And now all the people at the time understood that this wasn't a right. But every person said to himself, who am I to go tell a king, not just any king, but such a righteous king, who's so much more righteous than I, that he has to get married, that Torah law dictates him to get married. And there's no excuses, not even knowing, the, knowing what's going to happen in the future events. There is no excuses for someone not getting married. He has to get married, but no one felt worthy. He's like, who am I to tell, to tell a king that was arguably greater? Not arguably, was greater than them. There was not a single man alive that was greater than Chizkiyo, King Chizkiyo during his time. He was the greatest man of his time. The only person who was equal, not greater, was Isaiah, was Yeshaya Hanavi. But as we just mentioned, Yeshaya and Chizkiyo never met. So Chizkiyot kept not getting married, and it was a problem, and that's actually the real reason why he got sick, and the real reason why he was supposed to die, because he hadn't gotten married. Finally, Yeshaya comes to meet him. He's sick. He said, well, I have to go visit him. They were related, but also, you know, this is important. He's a prophet of God. He's a a godly man. He's an inspired man and 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 a... God-fearing Jew, someone's sick, he has to go visit him. So he goes to visit him, and he tells him, he says, listen, you're going, you know you're going to die. And he says, God told me you're going to die, and the reason you're going to die is because you didn't get married. Cheskiel's now hearing this for the first time. No one had ever told him that he, he knew the law, but he never knew, that, that, you know, he never knew the full ramification of it all. And now he's finally being told, and unlike many kings in the, before him and after him who would have you know, raged against a prophet who would have tried to tell him off, King Cheskiel on the spot realized he's right. The prophet's right. His Yahweh's behavior wasn't all right. He had to have gotten married. He didn't get married. And so he turns to Yeshaya and he says, you know what? The reason I didn't get married is because I know I'm going to have a very wicked son. And Yeshaya told him that might be the case. But that's not your business. Your business is to do what God commands you to do. Right now, you have an obligation to get married and to have children. What happens to those children and the choices your child makes and your children make, they're, the, they're, they're none in your business right now. Cheskiyot admitted that this was a mistake on his part, and he wanted to rectify it. So he turns to Yeshaya, and he tells Yeshaya, you have a daughter who's extremely righteous. Maybe if I marry her, in the merit of her righteousness, I'll actually be able to have a child that won't be doomed to be such a wicked man. Yeshaya was more than happy to give his daughter, but he told Cheskiyot, he said, it's too late. You're already destined to die. You're, you're deathly ill. You're supposed to die. There's, there's nothing to be had anymore. There's no use in making, you know, um, trying try to correct this or making, you know, betrothals and get marriages. It's, it's done. That's it. It's over. And Chizkiyot got extremely upset. And he said, I have a tradition for my father and I have a tradition for my father's house, my ancestors, that even if the sword of the enemy is by our necks, we don't stop praying to God. It's never too late to rectify something. So he told Yeshua, he said, you have an obligation as a prophet of God to finish your prophecy. Finish your prophecy and then leave my castle. I don't want to talk to you about this anymore. That's it. We're done. Because you're telling me that it's, never, that it's too late for me to fix this situation. I have a tradition that it's never too late to fix a problem. If a problem has been done against God, you can always ask God forgiveness and God will always make it right. So you, you've been told by God to tell me a message. Tell your message because you respected the prophecy. understood a prophet has to do what the prophet was told to do. But th- at the same time, once you're gone, I'm, I'm going I'm to talk to God because it's impossible that this is over. 
So that's exactly what happened. Yeshaya finished off his prophecy and he started walking out of the, out of the, the throne chamber the, where, where Chizkiyahu was sleeping out of, out of the, the castle. And meanwhile, Chizkiyahu Amalach turned towards the wall. And that's actually, interestingly enough, one of the, the ideas of praying near a wall comes from this very story. Some, some rabbis say actually the reason why he prayed um, near a wall, because a wall represented the inner parts of his heart. And Chizkiyahu did a prayer to God. Very, very famous prayer to God. And he invoked many things when he prayed. One of the reasons why he actually mentioned the wall is he said there was a wall in history. By when Yeshua, when Joshua came into the, into the land of Israel, he sent two spies out. And a woman by the name of Rachav saved the two spies, bringing them down a wall. And Chizkiyahu reminded God, he said, you saved her entire family, all her relatives, in the merit of that wall. And not only that, but you enabled her to her legacy to continue throughout history. There were eight prophets who were all descendants of this Rachav. And Cheskiel said, but my great-great-grandfather, King David, saved so many more lives and did goodness and, 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 and brought justice and Torah to so many more people. And you're not going to save his great-great-grandchild in, in King David's merits? He said, Rachav used a wall and saved two people, and her legacy continues to this day. My great-grandfather saved so, so many more, you're not going to save just my life? It's a very compelling argument. It was, a, it was an argument that was quite a winning argument, actually. But he, this is one among the prayers that, that King Hiskio told God when he was lying in his bed, literally about to die, facing the wall. Another thing he invoked is he invoked his own merit. He said, God, I've been a good king. I've been a person with so much goodness and I've brought so much goodness to the Jewish people. Are you not going to save me in my own merit? That, that argument, on the other hand, wasn't such a compelling argument. In fact, that argument was something that God wasn't so pleased about because God didn't, doesn't like when people invoke their own merit. When they invoke the merit of their ancestors, that's something that's very beloved to God. But Chizkiyahu invoking his own merit was something that was going to come to haunt Chizkiyahu quite a bit down the line. But the, another thing that Chizkiyahu mentioned was the another thing that he mentioned was the hiding of the book, and an, another thing that he mentioned was the practice he always had of mentioning Mitzrayim, the, the Hashem taking us out of Mitzrayim before he always started Shmonesra. He said, every time I start Shmonesra, I always mention the coming out of Egypt, and he said, this is such a good practice. In the merit of this, can you? Heal me, can you enable me to live longer? And what's interesting is, that was also a very good thing that he invoked, to such a degree that the rabbi instituted, to this very day, before we start Shemun we always mention the coming out of Egypt. In fact, we don't even permit an interruption between mentioning the coming of Egypt and the Shemun and the actual Amidah Shemun itself. That's how important of an idea, of a concept, that the rabbis love this idea, Hashem loves this idea of, Straight away between Shemoneser and and before Shemoneser starts mentioning the coming out of Egypt, it was a beautiful idea instituted by Chizkiyahu, and he he was able to invoke that practice of his, and it saved his life. As as he's praying, suddenly God comes to Yeshaya Hanavi and tells you Yeshaya Hanavi is still leaving the castle. He hasn't left yet. I imagine King Chizkiyahu's castle wasn't a little hut. It was probably a massive castle. But as he was leaving, Hashem comes to Yeshaya and tells Yeshaya, go back around, change your plans. He's not dying anymore. So Yeshaya says, okay. Yeshaya comes back to Chizkiyahu and says, I have a new message from God. The new message of God is, Hashem is adding 15 years to your life. And 
and now the offer of getting married was back on the table. So Yeshaya tells Chizkiyahu that his that he can marry his daughter. This is something that I'm sure his daughter would have been thrilled about. And his daughter's name was Chefsiba. She was a very righteous woman, and she ended up becoming the wife of Chizkiyahu Malach. They, they did in fact get married, and they did have children together. So this was this was. A resolution, and God's now giving fifteen more years, and that's obviously a big discussion whether it was fifteen more years or it was fifteen years had been taken away, and now it had been given back, and so it was the same amount of time that that Chizkiyahu was going to live. He wasn't given extra years of his life. Regardless, this incident of him getting fifteen more years was going to circle back around. It's going to be one of the reasons that Yeshaya was killed in a little bit because the fact that it sounded like he was giving fifteen more years to King Chizkiyahu to live. Regardless, King Cheskel was still very sick. And as Yeshaya is leaving, Yeshaya thinks to himself, i got to help Cheskel out. He's not supposed to die. Hashem already said he's going to have a miraculous recovery. No one had been this sick in history and had ever recovered from it. And Cheskel told whoever was there, I don't know who it was, but he told, he told them to bring figs. They brought figs, and Cheskel, and Yeshaya took the the moist, sugary figs and started placing them on top of the oozing pussy blisters on King Chizkiyahu's body. Now, usually that is the absolute worst thing that you want to do because that, that, that will just aggravate the blisters and make it so much worse. But in this case, Yeshaya Hanavi was trying to show Chizkiyahu miracles of God don't have to fall within nature, within rules, within reason and logic. And he was trying to say, if God wants to make a miracle of, of healing, it could come through absolutely anything, even something that would, on a on a medical, you know, chart, be a really bad idea. Just aggravate whatever pain he's already experiencing, and he put the the figs all over his body. There's a discussion whether that those figs actually created heal, healing for King Chizkiyahu, or whether it just soothed his pain, and then the miracle later on happened that he actually became fully fully better. But whatever it was, there was definitely some form of healing that occurred through the figs, which is like a double miracle. Firstly, the healing, and secondly, figs are not the figs are the worst thing that they should aggravate instead of even bringing any form of healing. And now King Cheskiel only had two issues. And the second issue, now he wasn't dying of the illness, the second issue was an internal rebellion. Shevna was a very loyal man to a point. But when Shevna had treated with Rav Shake, he'd gone back and very loyally said the message that he had been told from Sancherev. But then he started thinking to himself, Sancherev isn't planning to kill us. Sancherev didn't kill, for the most part, the whole north of Israel. He had just relocated them. He kept his word. And the only thing that Sancherev is asking for is the life of King Cheskiyo HaMalach. And the Beis Hamikdash, so Shevna started thinking, you know what? Maybe it's worth it. We'll be able to live our life, maybe in some other country, but just to save King Chizkiyo and just to, you know, still live in Israel and, and to have the temple, it's not really a, something we're willing to trade. And so he started building a rebellion in Jerusalem itself, in the city itself. And to such a degree that he built a rebellion, he managed to gather more support for his own cause of opening the doors and letting Sancherev in than even the loyalists who were dedicated to King Chizkiyot. So while King Chizkiyot was lying on his bed dying, a massive rebellion is brewing in the actual city itself with people dedicated to ensure that the doors of Jerusalem are opened and the army of Sancherev is led in without a fight. We'll finish the third class of Yeshaya in the next podcast.